And good morning and welcome. So glad that you're with us this morning. In this Lenten season, we've been walking over the last few weeks uh, through a series we're calling The Gospel in 12 Stories. And what we've been doing is we've been taking some time to sit with and learn from some of the parables that Jesus speaks in the Gospel of Luke uh, in the last months of his life as he's journeying towards Jerusalem. He's gathering people around um, and he's telling these stories. It's fascinating to me, I think uh, Jonathan said it in the very first week, parables are truth in its wildest form. Like, I love that description of the parables. It doesn't seem like the most obvious choice. If you have a very short time left on earth, why not write it down and be very explicit about all of the details? But Jesus is telling these parables, parables that uh, rely on imagination and reflection, parables that have layers of meaning, parables that are meant to be easily remembered, just stuck in your brain and pondered long after Jesus is gone. But I've noticed this too about these parables. They're an equalizer of sorts, right? Jesus is speaking in such a way that a Samaritan woman with very little understanding or knowledge of Scripture and a Pharisee who studied the Torah their whole life could both understand. Young or old, learned or unlearned, rich or poor, the parables are for every ready heart to understand and to believe. And as we reflect and ponder on these parables, the Holy Spirit leads us to layer upon layer of truth that will shape and that will form us. I love that about the parables. I love that even uh, in this room, as we read some of these, the Holy Spirit would direct us to different places and different truth. I hope that's been your experience as you've read along with us these past few weeks. It's certainly been true for me as I've sat with today's parable. We're going to read in Luke chapter 19 about the parable of the ten minus. Now, out of curiosity, how many of you are like, yeah, I totally know that parable. I've studied it exhaustively, right? Like, uh, that makes me feel better because this is certainly one that I am not super familiar with or hadn't been super familiar with. Um, it's often skipped over. And, and our preaching team even discovered as we were putting together this series that um, it's strangely missing from some of the, the books about parables, uh, which is fascinating to me. But it has held my attention in a new way set in the context of Easter and the resurrection. And here's why. Like, it seems more potent to me here. Jesus is walking in the final days of his life. This is actually the final parable that Jesus tells. Um, he take, it takes place in Jericho at Zacchaeus, the tax collector's house. Um, and this is the last stop that Jesus and the disciples, his followers, made on the way to Jerusalem. They're now just 17 miles away. And after teaching at Zacchaeus' house the next morning, Jesus and his followers and the disciples would have hiked from Jericho up to the Mount of Olives, 3,300 feet, and then down into Jerusalem, where a great crowd was waiting to welcome him with palm branches, shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That moment is what we celebrate today with Christians around the world, and we call it Palm Sunday. So this parable is taking place likely the night before, the day before. Jesus is just a day away from his arrival in Jerusalem. So there's an urgency. There's an importance to this message. For everyone that had gathered and had been following him, we're nearing the end. So what is most pressing on Jesus' mind to share with those gathered? You can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. 
Now, we have the benefit of hearing this parable uh, with the disciple Luke as our guide, and he tells us the purpose of the parable, which uh, helps to unlock its meaning for us. And Luke tells us in verse 11, while they were listening to this, he, Jesus, went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So Luke reminds us that they're about to enter Jerusalem. Many of the crowds that had gathered and were following Jesus believed that the kingdom would come at once. Jesus would come into the city and he would overthrow Rome. And finally, this Roman occupation would be over. Jesus would become king. That's why all these crowds were gathered in throngs, welcoming Jesus to Jerusalem. They thought that the time was now. There was all this expectation surrounding Jesus' arrival. Now, many of the people, you know, hadn't studied, like, the Torah for their entire life. Some, some did, but many couldn't even read. Um, the disciples that he gathered to himself were fishermen and tax collectors. Um, the Samaritans that had gathered in, the, in these last few months as he was walking through Samaria had very little understanding of the Scriptures. Even the most well-read and studied um, had a few books of Old Testament prophecy that they were trying to put it all together. So you and I, we have the benefit of the entire revelation of Scripture, right? And it seems obvious to us that Jesus wasn't there to, to overthrow the occupation of Rome. For us, we, we understand that the kingdom of God was something so much bigger than just the deliverance of Israel from Roman occupation. But it wasn't clear to those that had gathered. Like they believed the words that Jesus spoke about himself, but they didn't understand completely. And Jesus... Aware of this belief, aware of the expectation for tomorrow as they come into Jerusalem, gathers the crowd together, and he tells this story. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. What do you notice? Is there anything that stands out to you? The first thing that I notice is the master leaves and then returns. You know, Jesus is telling the story. We know that Luke told us that the people thought that the kingdom was going to appear in its fullness once Jesus entered Jerusalem. And here Jesus is saying that he's going to leave and then one day will return. You see, the kingdom of God had come and the arrival of Jesus, but it wasn't going to be complete in just a few days when he entered Jerusalem. They would all have to wait for its fullness. You know, you and I, we've been born into that now and that not yet of the kingdom of God. The kingdom has come and its fullness has not yet been realized. You know, Cindy called it a few weeks ago the inner advent period. So this parable, I, I think it's especially relevant to us that he's speaking to these first followers in this now and not yet of the kingdom of God. Christ had come, and yet its fullness had not been realized. And we also are in the now and not yet of the kingdom. And the second thing I notice is that the master gives each of them the same amount of money. Do you see that? There was an expectation that they put that money to work. There was something to do. There was something to participate in. And the money that, that each would have had 
given, would have been given was about three months' wages. So it wasn't something small. This was significant responsibility. Each of these ten servants were asked to use it, not to just protect it or sit on it. And the master instructs them to use it wisely as a tool to put to work. They were partnering with the master to build something. They were partners. You know, we've done something uh, kind of like that in the past here at Pulpit Rock. Uh, if you've been around for a while, some of you might remember the Game Changer Fund uh, that we later called the Missional Expression Fund. And we, we would ask each of you to think about what are some kind of kingdom uh, things, ide- kingdom building ideas in your neighborhood or in your context. Um, and we collectively uh, it's funded that stuff and gave resource to it. And there's all kinds of really neat things uh, that were sparked kind of in that season. What we learned from that is actually helped build a foundation for the Pando Collective, where we're continuing to look for kingdom stuff in our city and around the world. Um, and then we act as venture capitalists of sorts, funding those kingdom things, um, helping bring them to life with resources and coaching. But you get the idea, right? With all of that, the purpose is clear. It wasn't just money to like, hey, hold on to this for me. It was, I'm giving you this to partner with me to build something. It was to be leveraged for kingdom impact, for, for investment. And the master here is asking for them to take it and invest it, to use it, to put it to work. Now, uh, Jesus often would use these parables um, in, in using parables, would use real-world events. Like he would take circumstances that were happening around or things in the culture, and, and, and it would make sense, right? If you want a parable to really stick in someone's mind, take something that's kind of current or relevant and attach kind of deeper truth to it. Um, this one is fascinating. A situation uh, very similar to what Jesus describes in this parable had happened not long before Jesus gave the parable and involved one of King Herod's sons. He had visited Rome after his father's death to receive confirm, uh, Caesar's confirmation to, to reign over a section of Palestine, and he was uh, very much hated. And so people sent an envoy and said, please do not make him king. Um, it's likely Jesus was using that, that illustration as something that would have been familiar to his listeners. But I have to ask, like, why would Jesus use such a shocking comparison between himself and this really hated figure, King Herod's son? Like in verse 14, it says they hated him and didn't want him to be king. I'll admit, like I, I think that the language is intense. Like it, it makes me uncomfortable as I read through the parable. And yet, we know the rest of the story, don't we? When the people realized that the kingdom wouldn't come at once, today's Palm Sunday's shouts of Hosanna turned to crucify him. They didn't want him to be king in the way that he came. And Jesus is telling them that not only would the kingdom not come all at once, but that many would reject him. And here's an uncomfortable truth that we see repeated again and again in Scripture. God wants us. We don't always want him. Or at least we don't want him in the way that he came. It is a hard truth to accept, but if, if we're humble enough to do it, like we have to admit that we are always, not always, we are prone to use God as a means to our ends. When he fits in the ways that we need him to grow, to be formed for peace, to make our lives better. But the focus is on how he fits into our ends rather than losing ourselves as a means to his ends on earth. 
The parable continues in verse 15. It says, He was made king, however, and returned home. And then he sent for the servants, servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. And his master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? What do you notice? There's an accounting, right? The master had this clear expectation that the money given would have, would have a return, that it would be put to work. And so he rewards these servants accordingly. Now, there was 10 servants that took the mina. We know about three of them. And he affirms the two that had great returns um, and then spends the rest of the parable talking about this one that just sat on it. He rebukes the servant who protects and, and sits on what they had been given, but doesn't use it. I think there's a question for us to ask here that, that, that is worth asking. It's subtle, but I think it's so important. Why didn't the servant do anything with the mina that was given? Like the servant says it was because of fear of the master, but the master says clearly that if that were true, they should have just put the money on deposit. So if it wasn't fear then why didn't the servant do anything with what was given? I think the servant thought the master didn't need their help. Like the master was powerful. He already had everything. He had nine other servants working to invest what they had been given. Like, have you ever felt that way about God and the kingdom? Like, if it's his work to do, if he's God, if he has all the resources of the world, if others we know are more gifted or, or more talented or, or if they're participating in this work of proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom of God, then why does he need me? I've thought like that before. And I hope you see and believe this. The issue is not that God needs your help. The issue is that you have a deep need to participate in what he's doing. Like we have a need to be part of this kingdom work. It is how we were created it's how we were wired. It is the only way we truly find and discover our life. Our life as God intends. We have need to participate. Notice the language of each of the servants. I, I love this. They credit the master as they come forward. They, say, they each say, your mina has earned. The gift uh, of the master gets the credit. It wasn't their effort or their intelligence or their hard work. It says that your mina has earned. You know, Jesus' arrival on earth means the kingdom of God uh, has come. 
And his entrance into Jerusalem this very next day, today, Palm Sunday, marks the king's return. And he's telling us that we all have a role to play in this kingdom expanding. But there's something confusing here that I think is worth uh, taking a moment to address. There's a potential for some confusion. Like Jesus isn't talking about salvation when he rewards the, the first two servants for the ways they invested their resources into the kingdom. Do you guys see that? Salvation and entrance to the kingdom of God, it comes by faith in Christ alone. What Jesus is talking about is the ways that they'll be rewarded for the work while he is away. And, and while both salvation and rewards come as a result of God's grace, the parable teaches us that our work on earth uh, and participation in building the kingdom of God are both expected and will be rewarded when Jesus returns. Now, a lot of people take a lot of time trying to figure out, like, well, what is the reward that's waiting for us when he returns? I, I remember as a kid having this image of jewels in a crown uh, that I had read or had been told in Sunday school, and that crown would be given to me in heaven, and, and I honestly was not terribly motivated by that. Uh, <laughs> you know, here in this story, reward was more to leverage for the kingdom. It was more responsibility. It was more partnership intimacy in building the thing the master was doing. And there's certainly tangible rewards we experience by participating with God in the expansion of his kingdom on earth, right? Like, absolutely, there's, there's deep joy and there's peace. There's, there's something about beholding and being part of what God is doing um, that completely, I mean, animates and changes our life. And, and it seems in the parable that there's also rewards after Christ's return. Um, I don't know what they are. They're probably better than a crown with some jewels. Um, but I don't know that that's the point of the message and the point of the parable. But each of the servants are rewarded uh, upon the master's return in proportion to their work, except for the one who doesn't participate. Verse 24. Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. What a fun close to the parable. <laughs> the language of the master here says, because you've been trustworthy, to those who have been given, to everyone who has, more will be given. Have you ever met someone who just seems to be really spirit-filled? Like someone who uh, is just so good at sharing their faith, maybe just a natural evangelist. Have you ever met someone who uh, seems to always know what God is saying, confident of his voice in their life? Do you think they all started that way? Like every person I've ever met like that has one thing in common. It's been practiced. It's been put to work. Like we have the same spirit, we have the same gospel, we have the same ability to hear God's voice in our lives, but to those who put it to work, who exercise it, who walk it out, it seems more is given. Like it's deepened, it's quickened, becomes more natural, becomes normative in their life. I think this is what he's saying. There's this other thing that, that happens here where like there's, there's a number of places in scripture where God shows up and he shakes up the idea of just kind of sitting around and waiting, right? Like when God's people were in captivity in Babylon, there were many who believed that they should just wait it out. 
that the prophecy was that they'd only be in captivity for a short time. And they're like, well, let's just kind of hang out and wait till this thing's over and then we can go home. Um, and into that, God sends the prophet Jeremiah who tells them, hey, there is work to do. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city where I have sent you because in its peace, you will find your peace. Here, Jesus is saying the same. He says the kingdom has come, but he was leaving and he would return again, but there was work to do. They were invited to be part of this kingdom of God advancing on earth. And remember the moment. They're gathered in Zacchaeus' house, a mixed group, believers, disciples, critics, those who had no faith. They're listening to Jesus. He's days away from his crucifixion. Imagine for a minute what would have happened if these first followers of Jesus had just sat on it, had just waited. But because they didn't, the gospel spread. And the church grew from this little corner of the world and has now swept across the globe and endured from generation to generation. But it was so fragile here in this moment. Jesus leaves. The Holy Spirit comes, and suddenly the work belongs to them, these first followers of Jesus gathered in Zacchaeus' house. And now it belongs to us, for us to advance, for us to carry forth for the next generation. Now, this parable might sound pretty familiar to, to you. Um, it's very similar to the one that Matthew tells about the talents, uh, the parable of the talents. Uh, is similar, but it's different from this one in one really notable way. You see, in the parable of the talents, everyone is given a different amount to invest for his glory. And the idea is that we all have different wiring, we have different gifting, we have different personality, different amounts of money, knowledge, different resources, opportunity, privilege. But here, the master gives each exactly the same. Jesus doesn't tell us exactly what our minus are, but we do know that unlike our talents, our minus are the things that we all have been given in equal measure the moment that we believe. We've been given the gospel. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been given a vision for the kingdom. We've been given overwhelming grace and mercy. And I'm sure if we took a few moments, we could add to that list, right? The expectation is that we take our unique talents and we take these shared minus. And we put them to work, to participate in the growth and advancing of the kingdom while our master is away. That we enter into the joy of that. And in the final days of his life, this is the message most pressing on the heart of Jesus. His last parable, it's this. It's what mattered most to him. To make sure we understand the purpose of our lives on earth. Your life is well lived to the extent that you embrace this invitation from God. Nothing else matters as much. Like in this pivotal moment, in the last few days of his life, Jesus lays it out clearly for us. God doesn't need us, but we need him. And we desperately need to participate and partner with him in this kingdom work it is what we've been created for. It's where we experience our deepest and our truest selves. 
we find ourselves as we lose ourselves in the kingdom story that God is writing. Amen? So as we close this morning, I want to invite you to open that parable in front of you. Would you allow it to hold your attention and curiosity for just a moment? Maybe imagine sitting in Zacchaeus' house, listening to Jesus. Would you invite the Holy Spirit to just direct and lead you, to draw your attention to the thing that he wants to to say or speak? I thought we could just end with a moment of reflection, to just ponder it, to sit in it. And so maybe you do that by, by just kind of rereading there quietly. Or maybe these questions could be helpful. As you reflect on this holy week, are there places that you're resistant to him as king? Or at least resistant to the ways in which he came? Is there anything that you've buried and are laying away in a cloth? Just sitting on? And are you holding to a belief that the master doesn't really need you? Would you take a few moments and just invite the Holy Spirit to lead you?